Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Without further ado, we got Mr. Fish, who, uh, who lives in Philadelphia. He, his work has appeared in Harper's, Truth Dig, The Nation, The Village Voice, The Atlantic, and The LA Times. His awards include the Graham's Aronson Award for Cartooning with a Conscience and the Sigmund Delta Chi Award for Editorial Cartooning. And joining him is Bob Shear, Robert Shear, Editor-in-Chief of Truth Dig. He writes a column that is nationally syndicated by creators Syndicate in publications such as the Huffington Post and The Nation. The Society of Professional Journalists awarded Shear the 2011 Sigma Delta Chi Award, period. Shear is a former co-host of the political radio program Left, Right, Center, and now hosts the podcast Shear Intelligence on KCRW. He's a professor of communications at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at USC. And normally I, review, I read a review quote to give you a little taste of the book, but instead I'll read this excellent um warning that's at the bottom of the book description, which is, this book contains satire, which has been known to cause extreme bouts of giving a shit about the human race. <laughs> Here they are. Thanks. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show some dirty pictures first before we talk. It'll all make sense. I can say fuck here, right? Yes. Thank you. Emphatically right. so. I will. I'll be shouting that in just a few <laughs> minutes. Uh, is it, would it be alright if I also take this off the stand? Sure. Okay. You can unhook it too. Yes, this way I can sort of move a little bit easier. So thanks everybody for coming, sitting among the trees. And uh, let's just jump into this. I want to talk a little bit about um, what this particular book uh, means to me and what it might mean to you, hopefully by the end of my talk. Um, and also talk about what I feel my um, profession is um, and what my mission is and what makes um, the visual language that I use unique and special. Okay? So as you can see, the name of the book is uh, And Then the World Blew Up. Um, and I tend to see that as a positive title uh, because it suggests that it hasn't blown up yet. So if people want to get involved and prevent it from blowing up, there's just that tiny little you know, moment of time when we can actually do that. I was actually fighting to get uh, not have Trump on the cover um, because I, I, A, it's repulsive to have to draw that face over and over and over again. So it's, it's probably equally difficult to have to look at. Um, but my, my fear, well, my hope actually was the six or seven months uh, that I had to wait uh, while it was uh, in China or Korea, wherever they publish books now, um, I was so hoping that he would be out of office. And then, uh, you know, with Trump on the cover, then it would be a useless piece of crap. So, enjoy this, you know, while apocalypse is continuing to count down. So at the very beginning of the book, I explained that uh, I have written elsewhere how I'd accidentally fallen into the profession of editorial cartooning, having drawn my first cartoons not for publication, but rather as visual shorthand to be reinterpreted later on as text for lengthier pieces of writing. 
This book represents the complete role reversal in recent years of that process, which is now led by the writing of prose that is later rigorously mined for cartoons and satirical drawings. Therefore, each chapter included in this book is a demonstration of how an aggregation of words can be deconstructed and rearticulated and broken down into bite-sized pictorial pieces, their diction and syntax stripped to the skin, and their subtext exposed for all of us to revere, ogle, or condemn in accordance with how well we tolerate nudity. Um, let me demonstrate what that means. This is the very first chapter of the book. It's me writing about uh, what my personal pain is at the election of Donald Trump, uh, and also just contemporary politics in this country. Now, when you look at it, you can just see uh, there's a lot of work to be done. You have to get into this, read it, break it apart, have it make sense. It takes a little bit of time. Uh, as a professional cartoonist, I can do this and have the same communication. I can explain the same things. And as a matter of fact, for those of you who want to see something else, it's also this, um, which is not, not afraid to speak his mind, I think I call that, or shape for brains, I forget, I forget what I call this one. Um, but, but the idea is, is um, when it comes to uh, reprehensible people and um, really grotesque situations, you want to be able to communicate that with an image. Uh, there's, there's poetry and recognition of Discuss. This is an obscene picture. This is another example of something that when we talk about the United States, we talk about the American dream and where we are as a culture, um, I could go on and on and explain in a, rare, in, in a rather you know, academic way, could be very scholarly on why I think things are so fucked up. Um, or I can take five or six hours and render something like this. And something like this, I hope, starts a conversation uh, about, uh, you know, why I would do something like this. In fact, when this was up, this was up on Truth Day, um, and there were, uh, I got a lot of emails from people who were uh, disgusted. They were, they, they were upset that Truth Day ran it. But the majority of people that I, I heard from were, wanted it on a t-shirt. Yeah. So I'm going to ask some questions as I'm moving through this presentation. Is the offensiveness of an image ever endemic to the image itself? These are questions that I engage with constantly when I'm doing my work. Uh, and I would argue that the answer to this is no. I don't think anything is, I, I, I think uh, obscenity is a concept. And I think there's a way to prove um, although I, did, I guess I just did say that the Trump thing was, was offensive, <laughs> or just insane. Um, ignore that. We can get that from the podcast, can't we? Can you remove that? Yeah, good. I'm going to be consistent. Um, basically, the idea is, I think that if we um, are, are continuously um, looking at things that we think are obscene, are shocking, we're not going to be able to talk about them, and we're not going to be able to get to the bottom of certain issues will decide to um, ignore them for the sake of decorum and politeness, and then we don't understand anything. You can't comprehend if you're just going to allow things to be censored, self-censorship, and so forth. So again, that's something that I deal with with my work, and also is recognizing the same thing as comprehending. There's a lot 
that people do when they look at the world and they see iconic images, uh, they see um, 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 professional uh, people that they trust. Um, you can get information from something and you can recognize something, but are you comprehending it? When you look at the American flag, for example, are you understanding what that really means uh, to the culture? Are you understanding what it means to the world? Uh, or are you just reacting to things? Uh, as a visual uh, storyteller and commentator, uh, that's one thing that I have to consider. I have to consider that people quite often will have a reaction to my work and not be able to think beyond the reaction. Um, and uh, as a result, I think that the, the strategy that I have is to do lots and lots and lots and lots of images. Uh, because I do think it's important to think through these uh, these reflexive feelings that we have to get to the bottom of truth. So, talking about uh, images as a language, let's talk about what that means. Uh, when you're looking at uh, uh, pictures, uh, I would say that that I would call that an experiential language versus a conceptual language. The conceptual language is the lingual form of of communication. Okay. Example, if, you're, if, if you understand English and you can read this, you see that it's cold. You understand what that means, right? A visual person creates something like this, and the truth of cold enters your physiology from a different place. It doesn't have to enter your mind where you construct what your understanding of cold is. It's, all, it's being proven to you as a visual proof, and you're experiencing it here. Love is another example. And then we have this, which is a complication of what one would you know, think love. You would expect maybe like a heart or something, you know, care bears, you know, fond embrace under you know, a rainbow or something. Uh, but it's complicated, and with visuals, you can understand what that narrative is. Like this is somebody's wedding, and they're also in love. War. War. Does anybody know what this is from? This is from the uh, 1914 uh, Christmas tru uh, truce during the First World War, um, <clears throat> when soldiers from opposing sides, French and German, decided to celebrate Christmas by playing football and exchanging little gifts and promising to keep in touch if they survived the war. That did not go over very well for uh, the commanders. They were told that that is not a way to conduct a war. You're not supposed to recognize the humanity of the other side. Um, you're supposed to hate the other side. Um, so yeah, I think there was another one in uh, 1915, but after that, there, there, it, was, it was not allowed. It was a bad idea for war. Freedom fighters. I'm going to get to some of my art first. I just sort of went a little wild with my little slides here. Does anybody know what this is before I say? It's a very curious picture. It's from uh, 2013. It was the beginning of the, uh, the Civil War in uh, Syria. Now, if you can remember 2013, uh, all of the talk that was coming out of Washington, and this happens quite often when there's countries that are all of a sudden engaged in the Civil War, uh, the United States likes to pick a side and compare them to uh, our own freedom fighters. It's like a young George Washington. This is very inspiring. And that's what was going on in this situation. But what you're looking at here 
and what derailed that narrative of, uh, you know, the rebels are freedom fighters and wonderful people is that uh, this is one of the rebels going up to a soldier that was killed and cutting his heart out, and there's debate whether or not he actually ate it, but he did take a bite out of it. Um, and uh, like I said, after that, it was very difficult to, um, you know, perpetuate the notion that George Washington was over there cutting people's hearts out and, and eating them. Community. This is a woman on a Chinese bus who tried to commit suicide with a plastic knife being helped by people. So the point is with these is that with imagery, you can deepen these narratives because they're not as confined as the word that pre precedes them. Outlaw. This is my depiction of an outlaw. America. This is my picture of America. Architecture. I don't have a picture of architecture. I just wanted to talk about, ask another question. Categorizing oneself as normal is to seek definition through assimilation. Uh, in the book, the new book that I have, and much of my work does the same thing, uh, it questions the validity of, of, uh, of attempting to make yourself fit in and to feel normal. What does that mean? What are, what are those compromises? Because there's certain penalty, penalties in this society that say don't step out of the lines, don't color outside of the lines, uh, and don't um, uh, criticize certain things because it's inappropriate. So seeking that normalization can be a dangerous uh, a tactic for a life. Uh, and I just call that as, a, a, I name that architecture because it's not just physical architecture uh, that I'm naming when I say that. Be aware of all the cues that are around you that, that represent the world that causes these re reflexes that you have that make you behave in certain ways or, or stop behaving in certain ways. This is art as a language is being systematically corrupted and disappeared by the retail industrial complex. Does that mean? I have a visual proof. This is Times Square. Now, when you look at something like this, and you see that the the landscape is is populated by signage, these are ads. This is marketing. And what does marketing do? Marketing creates these artificial wants. That is, it, it, it's then told to you that your pain can be satisfied by buying certain things. So that is, to me, a true sign of, uh, of, of it's, it's disgusting. But constantly in our navigation through landscapes, we're surrounded by this, billboards and signage and everything, and that's normal. Where Banksy and other street artists, that is, this is illegal. And why? Because they didn't get permission to do what they do. Right? And something like that should be dangerous. That says democracy when even an idiot has a say. So something like this, you should be asking a question of just, of, of again, where this permission is coming from, um, why we are not in a constant state of panic and disgust by being surrounded by marketing, 
and in a society where people, individual citizens who want to communicate something, usually a political statement, are considered vandals. This is in Egypt. This is right near Tahrir Square. And then there's this. And again, I mean, this is, I want to throw this in here because this is an example of, of art that is not overtly political, but this is also an example of vandalism that wasn't permitted. So this is the definition of truth. So if we were talking about the conceptual idea of what a language is, this is what truth is. And I love this definition because it ends, the last part of it is, a fact or belief that is accepted as true. Isn't that the definition of an opinion? Right? So the question is, is uh, if, if there are no solid truths, uh, why are some opinions more valued than others? Is that a question from the back? <clears throat> so let me explain a quick analogy that I hope you take with you. This is a penny. Somebody see the penny? Now I show this because this is something, again, the process that I go through. And it's a, it's, it's, I think it's a great technique to demonstrate what, how the human consciousness works and why we're potentially screwed. Okay, we're looking at a penny. It's the physical representation of a coin, right? I mean, it is a physical thing. You can actually touch it. It has, it, it has mass. It's its, it's its own proof. But it's also a scent. And the scent is the imaginary value of the penny. Right? So what we have done, we've conflated the scent and the penny to be the exact same thing. So what does that do? That means when you look at a penny, you, th you imagine that you're actually seeing your imagination. Because everybody else is doing the same thing. This has really no value unless you're imagining value onto it. So if we're able to create a scenario where we think we can see our imaginations, and our imaginations are limitless, then we are in a, 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 a real, uh, I don't know, an, we're in deep shit. Another example, just like I said, the American flag is another example where some people look at this and it has all of this, uh, uh, this um, majesty and magic around it to where you can't recognize it as a piece of cloth, but sometimes it's, it's, it's good to burn it to make a statement against the United States. But some people will attempt to drag it out of your hands and they'll take it personal. They'll feel like they're actually burning. Same thing with this. Right, when you look at something like this, you see sexy technology. If you're a millennial, you definitely see sexy technology, but what you don't, what you don't see are the suicide nets of the people who are actually constructing these machines overseas. You don't see the full story. And that is that reflexive thinking that I was talking about. You're not permitted to think beyond the reaction to this as a sexy piece of technology. Same thing here. You don't see the predatory nature of something like Starbucks taking over neighborhoods and destroying the livelihoods of people of, of, of mom-and-pop stores. This is my rendering of truth based on what we were talking about. And I want to get that tattoo, but I can't find anybody who wants to spend that much time writing bullshit on my arm. This I don't need to go on and on about. This I don't either. 
be going on and on about anarchism. This is John Q. Public trying to determine where he fits on the political spectrum in America. So I figured I would give you some of Mr. Fish's rejected cartoons over the last 12 months, and it's a select few. These are not the titles, but these are just the subjects. This was election day. <laughs> this is hooray for white people. This is, uh, things are finally starting to look up for white people, Dutchie. I'm so glad that we didn't decide to become black when it was fashionable to do so. This is uh, no racism here. This is uh, to prove that I am not a racist, now that I've arbitrarily stopped and cut and searched you for weapons, I promise not to call you a nigger while beating the absolute shit out of you. And then this I find really, this is an important cartoon to me, because I think that removing that language uh, can sometimes uh, mask real racism and allow it to um, perpetuate and um, be institutionalized even, I would argue. Gay marriage. Now, I did this one, uh, geez, it was a couple months ago, whenever Australia had the big announcement that it was okay to, for gay people to get married. And I saw pictures of gay people embracing, and, and you know, it's, it's lovely, but it always pisses me off. Where it's just like, you really? You need... Well, I'll, I'll show you the cartoon I did. Stick figures, so you're not going to be offended. The one guy saying, maybe we should wait until the tiny group of bureaucratic white homophobic millionaires who call us moral degenerates in the name of a may pretend 2,000-year-old virgin Lord Voldemort of sanctimonious intolerance say it's okay to do this. This is the never-ending war. This is a two-dimensional hero not knowing what to do in the face of the pointless agony of a duped three-dimensional teenager suffering unnecessarily in service of a criminal bureaucracy. And again, my stuff is a little bit different from other cartoonists, editorial, editorial and political, um, because when I want to um, communicate agony and, and what is disgusting about war, I want to be able to do it in a way that, that is effective. Uh, that does what I was talking about, the experiential language, that hits you here first, and not just here. It's my climate change cartoon. The only difference between a Holocaust denier and a climate change denier is that one just gained the full support of the U.S. government. And finally, let's fucking do something. This is Jesus, and the meek shall inherit across out the earth. The shitstorm of bullshit that will eventually kill everything and everybody, so organize and get off your asses and make meek the last word anybody would ever think of calling you. It's a uh, quote that I really like. A work of art has no importance whatever to society. It's only important to the individual. So these are just pieces of art that do reflect the human heart much more than anything else. Sometimes the heart is angry. This I did uh, because I was worried about this movement slowly disappearing. And I wanted to do, uh, you know, reflect on it with a iconic picture from the planet of the apes. This is, I am corpora corporationless and happy about it. 
This is your ad here. This is, uh, I wanted to have a piece that sort of looked about two different kinds of paper and what was more destructive over another one. And I don't know if you can see, but it's the uh, We the People being destroyed by uh, capital, economics. And then it was this, power to the people type picture. This is my rendering of America. This is just a demonstration on, I think, what the job of an artist can do, which is unique. Um, so the first thing is, it's the artist trying to create a piece of art that acknowledges the beauty and vulnerability of the single human being. And as you see, it's going to get more and more complicated. And then another one that celebrates the cohesion of the family. And then another one that rejoices in the strength of community. And then another one that thrills to the limitless possibilities of the nation. And then another one that seeks to embrace the massive camaraderie of globalization. And then another one that struggles to maintain a sense of individuality among multiplicity. And then another one that complains about the cacophony of complete, of competing visions of truth and morality. And then another one that wonders why it's so hard for everybody to appreciate the beauty and vulnerability of the single human being. And now we're going to end with a bunch of jokes. Because <laughs> jokes are important. Jokes are very important because jokes give you permission to think outside the box and to be uh, progressive. So get ready. This is Pinocchio regretting the decision he made 51 years earlier that gave him a prostate. This is, fuck, I joined the drone program specifically to avoid this. praying mantis and he's saying yeah well you want to know what I say I say fuck God I've been praying night and day for thumb sideburns and a chick with big cans ever since every <laughs> ever since I can remember and fucking look at me <laughs> this is America winning at chess <laughs> this is uh, yes I heard what you said but trust me there isn't a clown coming out of Uranus Is uh, Cupid afraid that his parents are starting to suspect that he's discovered masturbation? This is great news. We just found out that Justice isn't really blind and that she's into rich white guys. This is Ahab. Can you check? His last name is Dick. Is it the Whites Only Hotel? This is Jesus, uh, and for those of you who can't have my body as bread, I invited my friend, Blutino. <laughs> that pussy-grabbing uh, joke. Fucking right, he grabbed me without even asking, the rich prick. This is, how can I take my outrage to the street and threaten the government with a show of force guaranteed to make the plutocracy terrified that we the people are pissed off and not going to take their oppressive shit anymore if the Wi-Fi is down? <laughs> this is a, actually, it's not as great as it sounds. It's the only position she'll try. Oh, and a classic Easter cartoon. Sorry, baby, not tonight. I gotta rise up early tomorrow.
And so this is my breakdown of the uh, of Jesus there on the mount. So go fucking be nice to each other. And there's me at your service. That's it. <laughs> I'd like to invite Robert Shear to join me. Yeah, you can attack me? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we've every one of those cartoons that you showed. And then on your band cartoon, I don't recall ever not running one of them. Where were they banned? Uh, they were banned everywhere. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, you ran the, the in the jokes section, you probably ran all of those. I should introduce myself from his father uh, that he never found. He had a stepfather who abused him, and then later he found me. True. And now he abuses me. Uh, and uh, if you haven't seen it, you should all see this terrific documentary on Dwayne. Uh, and is it showing anywhere nearby? Is it showing anywhere nearby? Not yet? I say really. I think there's going to be, uh, because one at Slam Dance, they're going to have a special screening during the summer at an arc light. But we don't yeah. have a day of that. Oh, okay. That's a few months down the road. Uh, it's a really great documentary. I showed it in my class at the, by the way, we're both respectable professors. He's at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and I'm here at USC. And I showed it in, to a large number of students the other night, and they really got it. It was great. What's it called? It's called uh, Mr. Fish Cartooning from the Deep End. And it's really a great documentary, and so I'll just summarize it because he hasn't been properly introduced here. Uh, he's this, obviously this incredible genius, and I think the greatest artist of his kind, I don't know if you can call him cartoonist, or graphic artist to what that we have. Uh, and I, I make no bones about it. And um, in fact, as though he can't make a living. <laughs> which is why we're here. And uh, I'm going to buy yet another copy of his book. And I'm going to buy Alice Warner's book. Josh, it's right. There's my other son, Josh, here. <laughs> He's got his own show on KPFK. And uh, there's a little red book, Alice Warner's book. And I'm going to buy that also because in there, Alice Warner said she only got into cooking and Chez Panisse and everything because I failed at politics. So it's a nice to have her keep my humility in place. She was my campaign manager when I ran. So let me say a couple of things about Dwayne here. I actually first saw his work in the LA Weekly and then a little bit in the Village Voice and then he was at Harper's. Uh, he has won, uh, we've actually both won the same kind of award from the Society of Professional Journalists. He's won it twice in cartooning, which is really a very distinguished award. And uh, he also was picked by our school at USC to do the definitive uh, program on the history of cartooning. And we, they did produce the book, mm -hmm. uh, the very good book that you can get on the history of cartooning. And one of the points about cartooning is the original uh, mass media, when the masses of people couldn't read. And whether it was a cave drawing or what have you, or the French Revolution, Dormier, or, or you can go right up through, uh, uh, in, in American experience, uh, people who uh, didn't read or didn't read a lot, uh, they could get the visual, uh, and that's why cartooning was absolutely essential. And cartooning has died in this country. 
there aren't any cartoonists that really make a living, or maybe there's four or five that hang around, uh, and that's because print has died. And, uh, and uh, the internet, although we at Truth Dig find it a great place to show cartoons, the problem with cartoons is you don't get clicks. It's a little mechanical problem. So people who are chasing clicks as a way of chasing ads to chase money, cartooning doesn't quite fit in, you know, uh, unless you make them so small they can't see it, and then you click, you get one click. That really doesn't work for the advertising of Google and Facebook and everything. Uh, and so through no fault of the cartoonists, because if you look at the latter years of print, cartooning was very vital. If you live here in L.A., you know Paul Conrad, who won the Pulitzer Prize four times, uh, was a great cartoonist, but, and a long line of them. So poor Fish, who was actually one of the most brilliant we've ever had, comes along at a time when the form has died. He's not the only creative person who has experienced this. The internet has sucked the air out of the room for many people. And one of the things that I found in this documentary that was really compelling, and I know it shook up my students, because basically in these universities now we teach the lie that there are jobs waiting for you <laughs> if you're only creative and write the right app and everything, which is garbage. Uh, but anyway, he had to go work at Whole Foods for a year and a half making little posters you know, buy this or buy that. And he even got fired from that job, uh, actually for good reason. He, they, he had a colleague that were going to cut it to one person, and she had a family or something. Well, she was young and not yet. Yeah, yeah so he, he surrendered his position to his colleague. But what I love, I have on my wall my favorite uh, fish cartoon of all. Well, actually, no. My favorite <laughs> fish cartoon of uh, all is, you haven't shown it tonight, but he's got a guy drawing a portrait of some guy who he's talking to, and it's uh, asshole, but the last letter is not there, and he's asking this obvious rich businessman for a million bucks so he can finish his painting. Uh, you know, and uh, that's sort of the contradiction of art now. Who's going to pay for it? And it's got, you know, is it feed a market? But anyway, the one I like on my wall is one that he did at Whole Foods, and he was trying to illustrate cucumbers that were good for making pickles. And he has a fist, the old fist, and he's got a cucumber and it's power to the pickle. <laughs> and uh, I love it. Uh, but it's also very sad. It, it's a reality uh, that we uh, have to face. So here you've got a guy whose work is more relevant than ever. Um, you know, it, it's needed. And, uh, and you know, and uh, at Truth Dig, we, you are our house cartoonist, mm -hmm. uh, even though he denounces us periodically, and uh, <laughs> that's in his nature. And uh, so there it is, my long-winded uh, comment on, on your work. Thank you. And I do want, let me just say, for one other thing, and since I know so much about you, uh, what I love about Fish, even though he's still a relatively young guy, uh, not quite half my age, but he has a great admiration for the Beats. And it uh, happens at Lawrence, you all look old enough, some of you, to remember the Beats? Ginsburg, Carolina, okay. So uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who's going to turn 99 uh, in about three weeks, is still with us. And I had breakfast with him uh, the other day. Still can't see too well, but it's functioning. And, and I just love the fact that this guy kind of skipped over the hippies 
and goes right to the beats. And Lenny Bruce, uh, that you know, when I think of uh, early '60s North Beach and mm -hmm. everything. So maybe you could just talk about it because, but by the way, in addition to everything else, Fish is a great writer. In fact, one of the things you have to stop in his cartoons, he forgets to draw and he just writes rah, 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 rah. <laughs> And that's not what you're supposed to do for a living. But anyway, uh, I, why don't you tell us about your own source of creativity and why you go back to the beats so often? Um, I go back to the beats uh, because I feel like America, for the first time after the Second World War, all of a sudden realized First, that you couldn't trust the government uh, because you know truth was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki all of a sudden, and all of a sudden we had the power to help to to self-destruct in a real, real way. So uh, the beach grew out of that feeling of we really have to pursue what it means to be human beings. We've got to find the meaning of life now, um, and I really appreciated that search. And the fact that it was a poetic search, and it wasn't just a political search, and it wasn't over-intellectualized, it was, it was trying to find the path uh, with the human heart, uh, which, I, which, which means a great deal to me, because I think that that's really how, when we feel most grounded, I think that that's where, I think that's what we're doing, right? I mean, if, if you are, most of our days belong to somebody else if we have jobs, um, and our time is not our own. So when we have time to ourselves, we want to spend it with friends, we want to spend it with family, we want to spend it with nature, um, and that is, that's always been really deeply profound to me. I've, I did not get into the uh, profession of cartooning, or even art, because I liked cartoonists. I did, in fact, I don't like them. I think that they, they tend to um, pose the wrong arguments and offer the wrong solutions because they're usually um, uh, political solutions. They're, they're usually arguing in favor of one team over another. And I find that uh, misleading and uh, I, I feel it has very little to do with, with the human soul. So just as Bob said, I was before I started, we started this program, I was over there looking at uh, Charles Bukowski. Um, and it just reminds me, it's just like, you know what, this stuff, there's that, that kind of exploration is like hidden in books that people just don't, don't know. Bob and I deal with this a lot with uh, our younger students. They don't, they really don't know the names of people. In fact, before I left, I, I was talking about Bukowski to my class. They'd never heard of him. They'd never heard of Kerouac. They'd never heard of any of the people that, that make me feel like, uh, I have reason to live. So it's very difficult to uh, get very emotional in front of the class and start talking about, uh, you know, John Coltrane and the Love Supreme, and they have no, they don't know jazz to them is Kenny G or something that they they rightfully turn off when they hear it. What's that? It's yeah. It's the, they they know a lot of of the thinnest form of pop culture. Which I think is the only form of pop culture right now. I, it's, it's funny because I still listen, I have a massive record collection and I listen to, um, you know, I listen to Bob Dylan, I listen to, um, well, I'm not going to go through my record collection, but basically I listen to music that has something to do with this search that I was talking about, you know, this, 
this recognition, recognition of the complication of life, the absurdity of life, um, and not about the celebrity of self, the cult of personality. Were you going to say something? I mean, I just want to answer, uh, expand on that a little bit. Uh, and I realized that last night, when I was shocked that my students had never heard of Paul Newman, because I thought, okay, at least we can talk about his spaghetti sauce. Uh, something I was actually trying to talk about Paul Newman, who made a movie called Fat Man Little Boy about the making of the atomic bomb and so forth. And I actually did a cover piece for Esquire about him. And anyway, it's a whole long story. And I saw my students, and I realized last night, I, I love teaching. First of all, I think our students are as smart as they've ever been. I don't buy any of this stuff, you know. Well, but what the, the trouble is that, you know, the old the thing that was said, I forget who said it, about amusing ourselves to death or something, mm -hmm. they're totally distracted. And, uh, and what came out last night for me is they really believe in the market. And they believe they're going to have great success. They're going to find some gimmick. And, they're, and what they, we were watching, what is that show you watch? What? The View. The View. <laughs> and, and someone was giving a, a, a paper, a good paper, and she was using The View. And it was these millionaires arguing about whether women are discriminated against because one comedian... That women were, are offered significantly less. Yeah, she only got $200 million and the other got $300 million. I mean, it was an incredible... Well, but then, the, 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 yeah, over five years, I'm sorry. But 200 million contract over three million. So there's this, and there is discrimination, no question about it. But then why are we watching these filthy rich people framing the discussion? There's something nuts about it. And then I realized, of course, that's the carrot. That's the lure. You're going to play the game. You're going to get the high SAT scores. You're going to go to the right school. You're going to network. And you're going to learn to write the right app or something, have the right gimmick. And you're going to hit the lottery. Right? And that's going to be just great. And in fact, this is not going to happen. It's not going to even happen for most of the people who go to Harvard. Okay? It's not going to happen. And uh, you're going to have student debt, and you're going to have problems. And if you actually try to do something honorable, like being a teacher, you know, or uh, uh, working in the community, or a social worker, or anything like that, well, but you're going to probably starve to death and certainly not be able to afford to live in the very community you're trying to work. And I know I have a son who teaches in a high school in Oakland and obviously can never buy a place now that Oakland's being gentrified and probably couldn't afford to rent a place in the next year or two. So it occurred to me the great thing about Fish, and, uh, and he's really central to what we're trying to do at Truth Dig, and by the way, that's not possessing the truth, it's digging for it. It's a different concept. We don't claim we have it. We truth dig, you know. You have to discover it, and uh, and what what I like about he's given vitality to what I think is the most important word that came out of the '60s or concept. And it's interesting because I saw Alice Waters' book there, and I was thinking about it. what is my connection with this you know, very successful countercultural cook, which is what her book is about. And she has changed a lot of thinking about healthy food and everything else. The key thing is the word, you know, not to sell out. She dedicates the book to Mario Savio. Uh, and, and the whole idea is that life has to have integrity. And, and this guy is Mr. Integrity. So actually, he's offered jobs all the time. 
yesterday, for example, I couldn't show up in my class because he had to have some <laughs> meeting with Hollywood people, you know. And then uh, Harper's had him for eight years or so, yeah. and the Atlantic offers this, and people offer him jobs because he's great. He's funny, he's wild, he's a great artist, and so forth. And then he always shows them a dick joke, right? <laughs> or a guy's got his head up his ass, you know? And, and there's a great scene in the documentary where his wife, this long-suffering, wonderful woman, uh, who supports uh, the enterprise, because we've got the starving artist, that's all very nice, but they have two children and everything, and they're stuck back in Pennsylvania because they got family support, right, and all that stuff. And she's, you know, looking at his stuff and saying, "Yeah, great, great. You still, got, you gotta have another dick, you know, uh, another head up the ass. Uh, you know, who's gonna pay for that? Who's gonna go for that? You know, and, and even push that envelope at, at Whole Foods when he's designing uh, things. Yeah. So the question I want to put to you, because I do think it's a great strength, but it's also the main cause of your poverty, uh, <laughs> is this idea of integrity." And it gets wrapped up with you in ways that are confusing, you know, like the head up the ass. And I, I have rejected, by the way, the yes. number of his cartoons, because I've said not another one with the guy's <laughs> head up his ass. I think it's scatological, I'm tired of it. So I have actually, uh, I've been denounced by him in the documentary that I'm promoting. I am denounced. I'm the asshole editor who will not run that piece, okay, uh, that picture. Uh, and but the fact of the matter, tell us where you draw the line. What is this battle over integrity? And don't you want to be more successful? Why can't you sell out? Just sell out a little bit. What is wrong with selling out a little bit? Well, it's, there's a lot of layers to that question. I think um, I, the way I approach my work is how I approach friendship and approach how I communicate with people. You know, I, I do head up the ass. Cartoons, because you know my friends and me, we find it funny. So if something occurs to me to be funny, I just look to try to make it as funny as possible. The same way, if I want to be a savage about something, I go as far as I can go with making it savage. Because I think if I think it's my responsibility to be as clear with my language as possible. There's no, you don't look at my stuff and wonder what I'm trying to say. Um, and yes, sometimes it's it's uh, distasteful to some people, um, but that's that's fine. It's 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 you know what it it, it also represents. Um, I've been often told by friends who've looked at my my work. Well, it happened the first time it happened is when I was at Rutgers before I dropped out, and um, over Christmas break. Uh, uh, a friend that I had there brought some of my jokes home, and these weren't even um, these weren't even visual jokes. I was just writing jokes. I was doing some stand-up at that time, um, and he said he brought it home this pack of papers, and he was going through, and he remembered he was in his room at home going through, and he heard his mother coming down the hall, and he said that his instinct was to grab everything that I that he had of mine and shove it under his mattress. And what I found really interesting about that was he thought the stuff was really, really, really funny and really truthful in many ways, but it was so inappropriate that he had to hide it. So that to me speaks of where I think I'm right there and that the greater society is wrong. And I think there's an argument to be made for that because I do think that um, when it comes to, as I was talking about earlier, self-censorship, 
and dumbing yourself down, that really comes from the idea that you're a different person in public than you are in private. And the people that I want to communicate are the people who are uh, most alive when they're in private and they recognize um, um, uh, the significance of deeper issues and their place in the world when they're in those private spaces. And that's what I'm trying to communicate in there. Because I don't trust what happens outside in the public space. Because this, the public space has demonstrated through history um, some really treacherous and really dangerous ideas that took a long time to, um, to be overturned. Right? I mean, even I don't even have to go back to you. I mean, I could give the example of slavery and women's rights, the right to vote for women and so forth. But even just go back to the Obama administration, just for an example. Um, if you remember, uh, early on when they were asking Obama about what his opinion was about gay marriage, he was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm against it. You know, marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, I can, I feel like I'm, I, I could probably say with, with a great deal of confidence that Obama doesn't give a shit about gay marriage. He's fine with it. But he had to project, you know, what, whatever finger was in the wind that said, no, we're not ready for you to come out in favor of gay marriage. And of course, a few months later, when the tide started to turn and the culture started to shift, then Obama was forced to pretend again, where it was just like, you know what? I was sitting, and I was thinking about this issue, and I think I'm okay with it now. And then everybody is just like, oh, that's really neat. He really came around. But why, I, I hate that, that, um, that uh, it's, it's all make-pretend. It's all made up. And that's the stuff that makes me crazy. And I have zero respect for that kind of behavior in public because it prevents the forward momentum of radically true ideas. It cripples the advancement. Yeah, let me say, uh, well, one reason we can afford to pay uh, Mr. Fisher pittance is because Norman Lear has given us some money for this. He's a great admirer of this guy's work. And, uh, and uh, it's interesting because Norman Lear is, was the guy who showed that television could be provocative and progressive. That's his great, I mean, no one has used mass media more effectively than Norman Lear, Lear to you know, educate, to challenge. And if you go back and look at his material, he was the first person in mass media to raise the issue of gay rights. Right. Uh, and uh, women, well, abortion, abortion. Yeah. You go right through the whole range of issues. So I find it instructive, even though we have a Norman Lear Center at University of Southern California, and everybody now admires Norman Lear, they don't follow his essential message, which is it is right to rebel, and that if you don't rebel, you're going to sell out. And I remember the first time I interviewed Norman, I was working for the LA Times, started working there, I was doing a series on television, and I went to him and I said, you know, what's it all about? Because you've got four shows on now that are the top ten, I think top four actually, mm -hmm. at that point. You're a great And he said, you know what? He said, they're still trying to stop it. And you've got programs of practice and everything like that. And he said, and you have to have in your mind that they don't matter. You can still put another piece of paper in the typewriter and write this, and you will find some way to do it. Now, that's a very hopeful idea, but that basically is what uh, drives you. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's really scary how few role models we have. Take whistleblowing, for instance. I, I just interviewed a guy from my podcast who was an active duty major 
in the military. He spent 10 years in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, he started, he writes for Truth Dig and a few other places. Now he's leaving the military after 17, he joined when he was 17 years old, went to West Point, taught at West Point, just brilliant guy, uh, Danny Surgeon, a uh, great, great guy. And I was thinking, why is he so rare? Why is it so, we had one at Ramparts, a guy named Don Duncan, Master Sergeant, so he came out against the war in Vietnam. But you know, you take Daniel Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg, who I remember covering him when he was on trial here, interviewing him. And Daniel Ellsberg will tell you, uh, when he came out and revealed all this in the Pentagon Papers and everything, he thought there'd be lots of people. He said, I had to wait 40 years for Chelsea Manning or for Edward Snowden or somebody, Bradley Manning, to, to come along. And how many whistleblowers do we have now? Eight, nine, ten? And there's this asshole, Adam Schiff, who's this now hero to a lot of liberals, because he's going after Trump, Congressman Pasadena and elsewhere, who he called Edward Snowden a traitor. Right? Adam Schiff has been on the Intelligence Committee of the House, just like Diane Feinstein was the head of the Intelligence Committee of the Senate. They knew the government was spying on us. They knew they were spying on people all around the world. Uh, they, they knew all this. They knew about torture. They knew all these things. They never told us. John Kerryaku, who told us about torture, CIA guy, for 15 years, he went and spent two and a half years in jail, you know, for, for telling us that. So the, the point is that the truth seekers, <laughs> these people, they, they don't become more common. Most people sell out. Most people go along to get along, okay? They can maybe, after a few drinks, say outrageous things, but they don't do it in the principal activity of their lives. They don't do it. Even though we have constitutional protections, even though we honor dissent, they don't do it. So you have to ask the question, not why does this guy do what he does, but why is he so alone? That, that is really the interesting question. You, and now, uh, you're always contradicting me. So, Josh, tell him why. I was going to say it's an Adam Schiff district. So you're probably an Adam Schiff voter. Oh, wait. Is this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, full confession. I, I once endorsed the asshole. Okay? I mean, I was speaking at All Saints Church in Pasadena. Yeah, lesser evil. I've flown for lesser evil all my goddamn life. You know? Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is, you know, why is it so hard to recognize that a truth seeker, whether it's Ellsberg or Snowden, yes, they're going to be inconvenient, yes, they're going to disturb you, yes, they're going to trouble the water, you know, <laughs> trouble the water, uh, but, but the fact of the matter is they're absolutely indispensable to what we're talking about, okay? We, we're thrilled to them if they're in Egypt or if they're in Russia or someplace, then they're heroes. But we never ask the question, why do we produce so few uh, Dwayne's here? Mr. Fish. That's really uh, the critical question to ask. Why are there so few examples of people who actually risk their career and willing to, you know, consume less? And, and, and do we teach it? Do we encourage it? And, you know, to my mind, the great loss of the Beats and of the 60s was that essential message that life has to have some core of integrity, okay, is gone. No one ever talks about it anymore. It's not talked about. Well, I think How can you be a winner? How can you be a winner? And whatever price, if you're a loser, forget it. So if you're a winner and you have to seem to have some pretty good ideas like John Stewart, oh, that's cool. Oh, you know, Webby Goldberg, oh, that's cool. You know, uh, Barack Obama, that's cool, right? 
even if it means you send drones and blow up a wedding and all this other stuff, you know, and we, we settle for very little. So Yeah, I was just going to make the point that I think in America one of the, th the reasons why that's so easy to, uh, um, why that happens is um, I think that there's a lot of surface behavior and, and um, like, let me just give some examples, I guess. Um, there's lots of people every time uh, Old Navy has like uh, peace t-shirts available with the peace sign on it. You see people wear, people wear the peace sign as, as um, fashion now. But in the back of their mind too, they're just like, you know what, I'm a real champion of peace. I'm part of the peace movement, look at my t-shirt, you know. Maybe buy like slave labor somewhere in some part of the world. Uh, but they don't actually have to do anything to demonstrate what that really means. And I think also, speaking of cartoonists, my experience with that whole uh, the, the lie that cartoonists in this country are, are you know, a dangerous group of people, after the Charlie Hebdo massacre happened, um, soon after that, we had, uh, there's an organization in the United States of political cartoonists, there's very few of them, um, but there was their yearly convention, it was in Ohio, so I took the drive from Pennsylvania, went to Ohio, and what was really interesting about it was we moved, when we moved from literally one building to the other, and we had to be outside on this college campus in Ohio, there were armed guards with vests and machine guns to allow us to move from building to building. And I remember looking around and looking at these other these cartoonists who all we're basking in this feeling that they were so they're so dangerous and they're so brave they require this, you know, this protection. And it made me sick because just to your point, I was hearing there are other cartoonists in other parts of the world who do the kind of cartooning that is threatening to their governments and threatening to radical groups and so forth. We are not anything like that in this country. And yet um, we will capitalize on the news of the day call ourselves brave warriors that require the protection of machine guns on a college campus in Ohio, and then believe that we're actually doing the work, and we're not doing the work. Didn't you draw, do the drawing that almost got us blown up? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah I must say, by the way, to, uh, to the credit of, of my publisher, Zoe Cal, my partner, in this, uh, we did run that that cartoon at a time when everybody, uh, nobody would even run the cartoon that had caused the controversy. This was how the Danish you, cartoon deal, controversy. How do you deal with a controversy if you don't show the bloody thing? And all the mainstream news, not only the mainstream, I mean, just right across the board, they wouldn't show the thing. I mean, you could condemn it, but show it. You know, if you feel it, okay, it's divisive or, or yeah. what have you. Uh, and I remember that, that was, uh, th there's a whole range of those subjects. So uh, should we open this up or how are we doing this? Yes. You both were just making me think of something I saw today when you were saying these things about why aren't there more people standing up for the right of this kind of thing. It, it, it's sort of an immediate co-opting and modification. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I saw American doll, girl doll or something. And she's like a, uh, you know, like a feminist, me too, woman's uh, person at Marshall. Right. Like a little doll. Uh-huh. So yeah, yeah. Sort of Can you repeat the question? Or I have to put these 
hearing things. Now. It's the commodification. Now the bionic man. I'm getting a new eye on Monday. Oh wow! Just got new teeth last week. <laughs> That's what happens when you're approaching 82? But. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't get the question. No, it's just a comment that the commodification of even radical ideas is dangerous. And that it's immediate. Yeah, it's yeah. Quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean about, that's why I was saying, there's that shorthand that's built in that it's, as soon as you have uh, something that has viability as a political movement or relevance as a revolutionary idea, all of a sudden, if you can market it, then it is absolutely defanged. But, but the peace sign was marketed, you know, almost 50 years ago. I mean, I had girlfriends in seventh grade who wore the t-shirts with peace signs on them. But there was still, there was still a movement. There was still, there was, I think there, there was still real activism going on. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think that there was at least that, there was at least that connection. Um, I, it's, it's funny, because I, I remember too, there was a CD a few years ago for the, uh, the victims of uh, Darfur. You know, and it was John Lennon, and it was just like, buy this, and certain money will go over this, and I, and I was in Amoeba, and I saw a guy who just happened to be in front of me, and he bought it, and then we walked outside, and he literally, like, went out the door, and then, like, stepped over, like, a homeless guy, and it was just like, oh, my God, just, like, absolutely disgusted, like, unwrapping his thing, feeling like he was just, like, such a moral human being, and it's just, you know... It's, so again, me, it's, it's part of the architecture. Let me throw a little hand grenade in here, because it's getting to be a little... Too cozy. Uh, you uh, started with all this attacks on Trump, mm. and and uh, my feeling is that so much of what's offensive about Trump to people is not the policies, because the policies really are not that much of a departure. But I'll I can go into that. It's it's the uh, boorishness. Mm -hmm. uh, the rudeness, the, uh, the ugly face of a reality we don't want to face. Uh, what is really the big difference between Jeff Bezos and Donald Trump? The reason I bring up the connection is because in the story, in fact we posted it from AP today, uh, Forbes came out and Jeff Bezos is now the first guy to have more than uh, $100 billion. I don't know what the hell that be for me. I can't even imagine a billion. Uh, but he's got now, he's the top four. And by destroying <laughs> most stores like this, where people could gather and see different books and talk, and the whole, oh, gone. Even Barnes and Noble's gone. Even, you know, uh, Borders is gone and so forth. And, and this guy pays people 12 bucks an hour to run around and take a thousand orders in warehouses and so forth. I mean, we know that. And, it's not and he owns the Washington Post. Celebrated, by the way, in the movie. I think it's great to mention that Ellsberg, and he's in the movie, but the Washington Post supported the war in a most shameful way until, you know, Ellsberg went to the New York Times and then they couldn't publish and then he went to the Post and they written it off. But the fact of the matter is he now owns the Post and he owns Whole Foods. <laughs> you know, he owns everything. Okay. And, and, and then they said, they were sort of happy to say this in the AP story, Donald Trump, he's only, I don't know what he is, uh, you know, 76 or something on this list, and he's only worth four or five billion or, or something. I thought, why is the big difference between Jeff Bezos and Donald Trump, other than Donald Trump, has let us see what the hell it is all about? Who are these people? They're greedy, they're corrupt, they care only about their own wealth, they don't give a shit about the, the consequence of their actions, and, okay, so then you get to the question, 
of the instability of these people. And it, is it really something very, let me just say, because I'll alienate everyone here in the next five minutes, as I do my wife every morning. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but there's something refreshing about having Donald Trump there. But, uh, let me just take one little question before you interrupt me. Uh, I knew I could count on you, but before you do, uh, and by the way, Josh is the producer of my show, Sheer Intelligence, so, uh, and uh, I'm very much dependent upon him, even though I put him down. Uh, but uh, you said the question of blowing up the world, right? That's the most frightening thing about any American president. We've let an American president have the power and, and 12 minutes to decide whether to blow up the whole world, right? You, you do know. If you don't know that, read Ellsberg's latest book on, he was a nuclear war planner mm -hmm. and everything. So, you know, whoever's president, they rub the sleep out of their eyes at three in the morning, and some assistant says you, it used to be 15, 17 minutes, now it's generally thought to be 12 minutes. We think there's an incoming attack, uh, lose him or use him or lose him, and particularly now with the uh, <laughs> demonization of, of the Russians, uh, it would be assumed to be, uh, you know, a, attack, we have to take them all out and end life on this planet effectively. If you don't know that, you don't know much about what these weapons do. They're much, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those are little toys compared to what we have now. So we've had this situation all along where we have entrusted one human being, the President of the United States, to make this decision about whether life is eliminated on this planet. And maybe some equivalent in Moscow, okay? But we've said that we've thought this was rational, okay? And, and we even had a madman theory that, after all, is what Nixon advanced. You have to act like a lunatic that, so they will believe that you will push the button. And you have to be prepared to push the button. So we've had this incredibly irrational situation, right, ever since uh, you know, inventing the bloody bombs and everything. Only now, for the first time, there's alarm about it, you know? We weren't alarmed when, when Ronald Reagan was you know, losing some of his senses and had that power. We weren't alarmed when Richard Nixon was popping pills and getting drunk every night. And you know, We know that now from the Nixon tapes. It wasn't when Lyndon Johnson was perfectly willing to use them in, in Vietnam, if it came to that, over a, a fake news of the Gulf of Tonkin attack that they knew at the time was a lie. Okay, <laughs> that's well documented. But now, because we have this let's call him this pig as president, visible pig as he draws him, okay? Oh, suddenly we're all concerned. Suddenly the mask is off, right? This guy is not necessarily more dangerous than the other folks were. He's less skilled at selling it and lying, right? George W. Bush convinced everyone, including Hillary Clinton, that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and that somehow, even though it had nothing to do with the World Trade Center, we had the right to disrupt the whole Middle East and everything. That went over, wow! You know, they all supported it, right? Uh, these Democrats that are now claiming. But the, the incredible thing about Donald Trump is, hey, this is our wake-up call. Why did we invest all this? Why do we trust these people? Why do we assume adults are watching the store? Why do we assume that they are not lying to us when they've actually been lying to us all the time. In fact, maybe it's easier, subversive notion, maybe it's easier to lie in a society that claims to have limited government and a bill of rights and an illusion of freedom 
Because I know as a journalist, when I covered events in the old Soviet Union, I could never find anyone in the old Soviet Union who told, thought that Pravda, even though it meant truth, told you the truth. Whether they were lifetime members of the party, whether they were in the political way, I interviewed a lot of people. No one ever assumed that Pravda was telling you the truth. Pravda was telling you the party's position. Izviesta was telling you the bureaucracy's position. So you at least had that going for you. There was great clarity that the game is rigged. And the problem in this society is we still have the illusion, right, and until Trump came along, that we have leaders that basically tell us the truth, and that they are adults and they are sensible, right, and they will ex exercise stewardship over the same. Okay, so this is the issue I will throw to you. Uh, not only as a cartoonist should you be grateful for Trump, but maybe as, 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 as maybe this is a teaching moment. Maybe he has providers. Now, Josh, I'm going to let you give the rejoinder. No, it's, no it was about the Bezos. Uh, so he paid $300 million for the Washington Post, but he got $600 million from the CIA. So in theory, oh. the CIA bought the Washington Post. Yeah, well, this is a very good point, by the way. I was reading the AP. in Washington, the, the more radical elements, but okay, so, we'll call it the CIA's paper. Okay, so this is really about fish, but let me just tell you a dirty secret about myself. I've written three books in the last 10 years or so forth, but he actually wrote them. These are the truth, this is not bullshit. You, you don't write books when you're uh, getting to be 82 uh, unless you've got someone you can exploit. Fortunately, I'm exploiting my own son and, and not someone else's uh, child. Uh, but, but Josh is really on top of this, and, and this is really a critical point. It's the last editorializing I will do, uh, I hope. But, uh, but I do want to make this point. In the story in the AP today, talk about fake news. And in, in the other papers, when they talked about Bezos' wealth, they talked about all these different activities. They did not mention that Amazon is building the cloud. Not only does Amazon have all this information about you, how far you read in a book, and what music you listen to, and everything else about you, all right? They have that. That's how they do data mining. That's how people sell to you. That's how they sell to you. But they actually are building the cloud that contains all the data the government has on you that the CIA and the NSA has. That's done by Amazon, okay? That was not even mentioned in the stories, that they are a major contractor in the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower won with. Yes, John? I was going to add, actually, because in the last few days, they want to become a bank. And when they become a bank, I was just reading today that it will be the third largest bank in the country, or maybe the world. Amazon? Yes. Amazon's about to, wants to become a bank. But we can't have yeah. So we can have questions. Do anyone? Do people have questions? Yeah. So I picked up a few things from what you're saying, and I'm wondering where in the radical imagination can we negotiate the idea that a comic can't bridge a conversation that involves the soul of our country, and we have people who claim that. If you want a woman elected president, she's got to be a hawk. And, and the idea that there is integrity with the dominant culture moving to Hollywood, where the moral and ethical soul of this nation resides in Hollywood, and that's a given fact. So where do we nourish the radical imagination if we accept 
but we don't if we accept. I mean, that's the point. The point is, is that you have to disrupt, um, and you have to go against um, the common assumptions, um, because I, I, I really do think that uh, what most people think they believe, they don't really believe. All you have to do is ask the right question, you have to challenge them, um, uh, and they will then teach themselves. I think, that, I think that that's an important point too. I think that we only learn what we teach ourselves. So you have to um, not ridicule people and make them feel um, um, helpless and stupid. You want to give them a language and the grace to teach themselves the proper things or just have their, their eyes wide open in the right way. Could you talk more about that? I, I just did. I know, but no, I mean, I, you know, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. I hear you, but I think disruption is the easy answer. It is disruption, but it's the kind of, but I, I, it's also, as long as you understand disruption as, um, as, as, as being capable of happening in many different ways, um, I think the language of poetry, introducing people to, um, um, situations where they have to contemplate, where they're not constantly bombarded by distractions. Because that's the problem, I would argue, today. I think technology, while it's wonderful and flashing to so many people and thrilling, um, it's, it's, um, it's debilitated us and prevented us from it, being able to even enjoy the company of our own mind. People cannot go a block without looking at their phones. Um, and it's because of that. It's because that they don't have practice doing it. And that's my fear with as treacherous and horrible as, as Trump is, and I, I agree with your point that it's now, now it seems obvious, but I, my, my fear is, is that people have been hobbled in so many different ways that um, I, I worry about the ability to coalesce a real movement that can effectively um, do anything. People don't know how to congregate anymore, except online, and that is a virtual community. That can be massive, but it's virtual. You're isolated. It's made up of isolated people in the privacy of their own homes. That's not a movement. So what I'm hearing from you is that poetry creates the contemplative language and learning tool necessary. Well, it's a, it's, it's a proof that we are vulnerable. That's what it is to me. Like, if, if you engage in music and poetry and, and the kind of conversation that we're suggesting with tonight's talk, what you're doing is you're proving to yourself is that you are precious, that you are worth saving, that you are something beyond a label. Um, and that's the only thing that we're going to, that's, that's the only way we're going to be able to save ourselves if we prove for ourselves that we're worth saving. And a lot of the conversation that happens in this culture does not engage that way. It, it, it categorizes you as a as a brand to a kind of politics, a kind of you know pop culture ideology, but it has very little to do with the human experience of the human soul. Yeah. 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 I'm a musician, so I've just about never had a regular job. Mm -hmm. So all these talks about what sacrifices have to be made for integrity are kind of alien to me, but you apparently live in Pennsylvania because you have relatives there. Yeah. So you have a lot of kindness in your life. No. <laughs> no. Because I was going to ask, well, I will ask, where's the kindness in your art? The kindness is in the writing in this particular book. Um, the kindness is in the jokes in this book. There, There is a lot of 
commentary that's very biting and very brutal. Um, but a large part of this book was attempting to engage with concepts of authority uh, through personal narratives. Because I think that that's what informs how we um, relate to uh, establishment authoritarian um, structures outside of the home. Uh, as a re if you read the book, you would find out that I was abused by an alcoholic uh, stepfather. So when you have that kind of upbringing, you're suspicious of authority because it's not being proven to you. It's actually it, it's it's a, it's attempting to uh, manipulate your life for no real truthful, justifiable way. So as a child, developing that reflex, I was able to then to apply it outside of the home, and it bore fruit. Everywhere I looked, where it was just like, oh, you're supposed to like this particular person because they are, they represent something in society. Let's respect the president. Let's do, um, you know, respect law enforcement. All of these tags that after being beaten up by father made me suspect of everything else. So with that critical thinking, um, I was able to um, see through bullshit and then be offended by it and then communicate the uh, the upset with that. But I, I mean, and, but you as a musician, and that's, and I'm, I'm glad that you showed up to, to name that because um, I was thinking about that um, today. That's, you're, to me, the, the best kind of artist there is. Congratulations. <laughs> Only I like the Beatles, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's it's just if anybody who listens to music is um, is you're allowed to be. It's a, it's a it's a kind of it, it's it's a, it's a kind of art that allows you to be present centered. And as human beings, we are very infrequently allowed to be present centered. If you think about it, you move through your day ant anticipating or reflecting. Mm -hmm. Music hones you and puts you in a space. It makes you aware. And even if there's a commentary to the music, it's aside from the music. Right. The music exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But also, I don't think you're being fair to your work. Uh, it's not hurtful. It, it's very protective of vulnerable people, mm -hmm. of people who are being bombed or, you know, exploited. Uh, it's not just you know, skewering everyone? No. No, it's uh, skew It's the old slogan. You want to know who's getting screwed and who's doing the screwing. And, yeah. And and you're pretty. You're clear. You're also a house husband, and been. You know, and your wife pays tribute in the documentary. You're the one who's raised your twin daughters. Mm -hmm. Not to take anything away from your wife, but yeah. you know, the fact is, you're a very concerned parent. You know, so I mean, you, we don't. We don't want to reduce you. And and actually, you're very soft-spoken in a way. I mean, that's the thing. It's always, you know, I, I, oh yeah, I just had a nice, lovely conversation with Mr. Fish, and now I'm going to look at his cartoons that he just sent me, and holy, <laughs> you know, we can't run that. Uh, but as I say, I, I don't think it has the meanness of some of the comics, you know, where you go and you know everyone in that audience is going to be put down. And, and so forth. That's not your work, you know. No. You know. Yeah. Uh, anyway. And you're a musician. And I'm a musician. Yeah. I listen to what I like to talk. And he writes songs. I just listen to them. I love them. Yeah, he's not a good salesman. <laughs> 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 anyway. 
one more question. Is there anything else? I have a comment. Oh, wait, let's hear from somebody else who I haven't heard from. Well, believe it or not, the Lions have a contest in California, Nevada. And the topic is the importance of civility and integrity in today's world, which is pretty impressive that they would take the time to get to high school students mm -hmm. and bring this out as a topic of discussion. So it seems like there's some hope that people are getting it, even people you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Right. Because well, it is the second word, civility. Civility and integrity. Yeah. Yeah. Because often civility is talked about uh, without integrity. And it's very easy if you have power and you can control your own life and you're doing well to be civil about it. But if, if you don't factor in integrity, I think Bill Gates has no trouble being civil uh, you know, about his circumstance. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not challenging that. Yeah. No, it's a good distinction. Last question, yeah? Uh, I got two questions. Uh, the first one you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Have you ever gone to ACA meetings? Or are you in, you, you have to ACA? What is ACA? Adult children, uh, adult oh. alcoholics and, no. and dysfunctional family. Oh, um, so the second one is, um, Tim Leary used to say, remember Tim Leary? Mm -hmm. He used to say, turn on, tune in, drop out. Yeah, yeah. Which might be appropriate today. But this question you had about why are folks like Ellsberg, why doesn't anybody rise or you know blow the whistle? And Tim used to say, in the tribe, you either moved west or you were killed. Or you conformed and just shut up. Or if you had a great idea, they cut your fucking head off. Or you hauled ass west. And he said, good ideas and, 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 and creativity and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was always moving west. Mm -hmm. This is old shitty. This is back in the 80s when, you know, space shuttles getting started. We're going to have solar panels, which was good. Right. <laughs> Other things to vote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if 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 you will all um, uh, allow me to do this, this maybe you saw this in the Times. It was a cartoon right after the, the the big orange one got elected, and they had a cartoon there. But they had a quote. You'll all pick up on this, right? They had a quote from H. L. Mencken. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a dinosaur who's on a rock, so you guys are all much more hep than this. And this was from the Baltimore Evening Sun, July 26, 1920. Let me say that again, 1920, right? And here's what he says, quote, <clears throat> As democracy is perfected, the office of the presidency represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their, heart desi their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be occupied by a downright fool and complete narcissistic moron, unquote. 1920. Okay, let me, let me challenge that. I, 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 I take it personally because I think it's an elitist notion. I never did like Mencken. And, and uh, <laughs> let, let me just say, the people who fucked up this country were graduates of Harvard, you know, or the Wharton schoolers in China's case. They were the best and the brightest that gave us of Vietnam. Uh, and if you look at the housing meltdown, which created the public uh, fear and anger about the economy and unfairness that allowed right-wing populism as well as left-wing populism of Sanders to come up, and that was defeated by the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and the reality is, and this goes to this question of uh, uh, manners and civility. Civility is very often a cover for torture 
for exploitation, you know, for degradation of people, okay? Uh, that's what people do with power. Uh, they don't have to have terrorist weapons, they can have B-52s and so forth. They can use drones, they can do lots of things. And, and I think it's a real trap to think that our problem is with rudeness uh, I, I, or lack of education or the masses getting involved. My view is the masses have been betrayed, brutally betrayed. They've been lied to consistently and they've been lied to by the finest by the New York Times, by the LA Times, by NPR, you can go right down the list. They've been lied to about the main things that go on in their life, who our enemies are, why we have to have an empire, how our banking system works, what are liars, loans, and so forth. And I think the, the orgy uh, of attack on Trump, and I'm all for attacking Trump, okay, is, is unfortunately not saying we should have had Sanders, or some decent populace of a progressive instinct. No, they're saying, hey, we lost control of our game here. It must be the Russians. We lost, we're supposed to be able to decide these things. We, we're supposed to be able to put adult-like people in power, reasonable people who don't make a scene in front of the crowd, right? And, and the value and the danger of Trump is that he's the, the naked, ugly, accurate face of American capitalism at this point in our history. That's what Donald Trump is. You're kidding yourself if you think it's because, oh, the masses got angry and they're acting, or, you know, which would be the Mencken argument. On the contrary, on the contrary, the, the ruling circles in this society, okay, the elite, the establishment, have disgraced themselves. They have a short-term view. They don't even, I covered Nelson Rockwell. I profiled them. I, I know the old crowd. They at least worried what their grandchildren would think. These thieves at Goldman Sachs, they don't give a shit. They worry about the quarterly report in the next quarter, and then they're going to be out. That's what Robert Rubin did. That's what Lawrence Summers did, and he was rewarded being made head of Harvard, okay? And that's how we got into this big mess with the economy. That's why we don't give a shit about who gets screwed on these trade deals. We don't care about spreading the wealth enough. We've got this incredible income inequality growing rapidly. So they're not acting as adults. The old rulers, even the, the robber barons, knew you've got to give something back. Enough crumbs have to fall off the bottom. These people have lost that. Absolutely lost it. You know? And the, the thing that, I'm, I'll, let me just do my own little editorial then. I am really outraged. The whole upset, who stole the election? Okay, I hear this all the time. You know? uh, okay, who stole And what was the big crime? Now they're blaming uh, Julian Assange. They're blaming you know, Putin and everything. Really? What did we learn? We learned two basic things from this. One was, what did Hillary Clinton say when she went to Goldman Sachs? Okay? And what did she say? She told them, I need to bring you to Washington. You people know how to fix the system. You are the smart people. There was not one word of criticism. Forget about the money she got. There was not one word of criticism of what these people had done to the lives of ordinary people. And particularly, by the way, the people that the Democratic Party claims to care about, black and brown people, college-educated black and brown people, according to the study of the Federal Reserve, lost 70% of their wealth. Not their income, their whole wealth, wiping out the gain of the civil rights movement. The other thing we learned from that activity was what was going on at the Democratic Party to undermine Bernie Sanders. And here you had an authentic, progressive populist. I thought Bernie Sanders was going to get 2% of the vote. 
I was blown away by the wisdom of the American people, ordinary people, who responded to him. Beginning with my students, by the way. I saw Bernie Sanders stickers all over the place. I never saw a Hillary sticker. You know, so I knew something is going on here. And, and so what do we do? Instead of learning a lesson in this campaign, right, that if you're going to betray the interests of the people, you're going to get right-wing populism, you're going to get scapegoating, you're going to get immigrant bashing, you're going to get racism. That's fascism. That's what happens when capitalism fails to, to clean up after itself, okay? And if you don't, if you don't want that, you've got to have a progressive, dare one say, social democratic alternative where you give enough back to the people, as the Tuckbull said, so they don't riot and eat you, okay? That's the message, and that's what the Democratic Party to this day is burying with all of this hysteria. Yeah. Ending on a positive note. <laughs>